to Rising. Our show is straight fire today. We're wearing red. <laughs> what do we have going on, Brianna? Well, Robbie, we are going to weigh in on Don Lemon's viral reparations moment with guest Denise Long and Amisha Cross and Abraham Enriquez will join us for our Rising panel. They'll give their perspective on the lawsuit three Venezuelan migrants have filed against Florida Governor DeSantis. We'll also dig into what is going on with Puerto Rico's privatized power grid with Puerto Rican journalist Angelica Serrano-Ramon. But first, let's continue on this journey of the migrant busing saga. So yesterday, President Biden responded to reports that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was possibly sending migrants from Texas to Delaware. Let's watch that. He should come visit. We have a beautiful shoreline. There you have it. Earlier in the day, the White House said that the administration was coordinating with state officials in Delaware to prepare themselves for the arrival. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked whether or not the president had been in contact with DeSantis or Texas Governor Greg Abbott over the immigration dispute. And here's what she said. Has the president reached out to any of these governors? So here's the thing, and I was asked this question earlier today. I don't know why we would reach out mm -hmm. to a governor or governors who are clearly playing a political game, right? It is something that they're doing not to find a solution, but to literally, literally put people's lives at risk. Okay, I mean, that is an interesting perspective. I mean, I certainly agree with the idea that this is a political stunt, that this is not I've acknowledged done, that many times it is. Yeah, in, in an effort to, you know, help migrants or to really find the best solution to this issue. But I do think that there is something to be said for having a conversation about what, for example, would end this kind of a practice. If, if Biden and Democrats legitimately, legitimately feel like this is a stunt that comes at the expense of the well-being of migrants, I would, I would think that there's some interest in stopping it and talking about what kind of remedies would, you know, that these people would accept, or at very least have the conversation that, so that Biden can say that he came to them in good faith and tried to work through solutions, and they were the ones that rejected the proposal. Yeah, and I mean, putting their lives at risk, I mean, they're getting a, a flight to somewhere else in the country. I mean, the entire migrant journey puts their lives at risk, um, not, you know, when, when the facilities are overwhelmed and there's not adequate place for them when they're in Texas or wherever else they are, some of them end up um, on the street. I mean, that's putting their lives at risk. This, I, I agree that this is, you know, that we need to come together and find an actual solution to this instead of just like relentlessly playing politics. But because they are human beings, but the the current system. Um, puts them in danger during during the crossing, and then we're having this status for them that is ridiculous. Uh, you know, we need to actually work toward fixing it. And so that was a uh, unfortunate, I, I think, uh, note of just defiance from Biden, a just refusal to come to the table. If, if, if Republicans aren't going to work with him, if they're going to, you know, persist in just kind of like doing the, doing stunts, that kind of thing, well, then fine. But he's not even trying. Yeah. Did you did you ever have an adult tell you when you were a little kid, look, look out for the helpers? <laughs> These politicians and they're they're always playing these games and it sometimes can feel like just a, a circle of blame game and, and you don't know who to trust. I'm looking for people who have solutions. And even if you're talking to someone who's acting in bad faith, if you're the one that's proposing a solution, even if you don't think it's going to be accepted 
in good faith, you still look like you are coming to the table to play. And I think that's what voters want to see. Mm. Well, meanwhile, DeSantis called out the administration for ghost flights after a reporter questioned whether or not there would be a migrant flight going from Texas to Delaware. So when Biden is flying these people all over the fruited plain in the middle of the night, I didn't hear a peep out of those people, okay? I didn't hear a peep. I haven't heard a peep about all the people that have been told by Biden you can just come in and they're going, they're being abused by the cartels, they're drowning in the Rio Grande. You had 50 that died in some shed in Texas. I heard no outrage about any of that. Now, some said this was all a nothing burger. CNN's Caitlin Collins reported that while the administration was tracking reports of migrants being flown to Delaware, according to a spokesperson from the Department of Homeland Security, there were no reports of migrant planes entering Delaware as of yesterday. But it is true that, and this goes to a point I've been making as we've been discussing this, look, the migrants don't have to and don't always, in fact, often don't, stay right on the other side of the border when they come through. They are, they are free if they've, claimed, if they've made an asylum uh, claim for, uh, for, uh, under the asylum, political you know, repression. They make that claim, and then until that claim is adjudicated, which could take years, mm -hmm. they are free to roam the country. They can move about the cabin. And, they can, and also, if there's children in the mix, the, under U.S. law, the, the government, our government, has to find foster care for them or, or fa if there's a family, you know, uh, cousins or some, someone somewhere in the country related to the, the child you can place them with. That involves often putting them on buses or planes and taking them to other parts of the country. So immigrants like moving around, even immigrants whose you know, status is not totally adjudicated or known, moving around is something that like happens now. I get the Republicans are doing this specific thing for a political stunt, but this is something that happens normally. Yeah, I think the argument and at least the argument that I made yesterday was the concern is that moving them specifically to Martha's Vineyard was a problem because they don't have the resources there as a destination that's not a typical destination for immigrants for myriad reasons. Because it's not a place with a particular amount of ethnic diversity where people are meeting up with family members or whatever from across the world. It's not a place that's close to the border. It's not a big city where there's a lot of um, financial opportunities or business opportunities or industry. And so and it's also an a place where they just didn't have as many beds and resources, immigration attorneys and the like for the people who were dropped off there. So yeah, I agree. I think the scandal is less so the idea of immigrants moving around the country or that they would even have that immigration facilitated. I do think it's the choice of where to fly them uh, and that choice being made without any consideration of what's good for the migrants. And also Ron DeSantis' involvement at all as someone who's not actually from a border state. Right, he's doing this facilitating in the middle. Well, right, he's involving himself, I think, quite obviously to raise even further his national profile um, as he seeks to become the thought leader of the GOP, the, 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 he's trying to replace Trump. Yeah. Uh, and he's doing a pretty good job of it, in fact. I think his odds of being the next Republican candidate you know, have gone up dramatically in the last year from now. I, I think he would certainly give Trump a run for his money if they both if they Really? Both Absolutely. And it's actually, it's things like this that play extremely well. I mean, despite, no matter what you think about them, you have to concede, they play extremely well with the very conservative Republican base, with the kinds of voters he would need. Um, he, he needs to show these voters that I know you love Trump, but I actually do things. Trump yeah. just talks. Mm. I do things. The shit and, out of watch, for yeah. sure. <laughs> All right, I'm waiting on the edge of my seat to hear what's on your radar, Brianna. Stay tuned for that.
Priyana, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, is Bill Maher defending slavery? That's what some folks have claimed following a segment on his HBO show Real Time last week. But is it true? Let's take a closer look. The segment at issue was on the subject of history and whether wokeness is getting in the way of truth. Maher argued that it is unfair to judge the past by the standards of the present, and that doing so is rooted in a woke desire to make contemporary humans feel righteous in comparison to figures from the past. Let's take a listen. And finally, new rule, you can get creative with a novel, a TV show, or a movie, but history books, that's not supposed to be fan fiction. How we teach our kids history has become a big controversy these days, with liberals accusing conservatives of wanting to whitewash the past, and sometimes that's true. Sometimes they do. But plenty of liberals also want to abuse history to control the present. And last month, a scholar named James Sweet caught hell for calling them out for doing just that. He criticized a phenomenon known as presentism, which means judging everyone in the past by the standards of the present. It's the belief that people who lived 100 or 500 or 1,000 years ago really should have known better. <laughs> Which is so stupid. It's like getting mad at yourself for not knowing what you know now when you were 10. Marr argues that presentist critiques fail to recognize important historical context. And surely some instances of presentism do exist. I have a friend, a teacher, who recently observed that some of his students didn't realize that Negro was the preferred term for black people until the 1960s, and that the terms used in older literature did not, in fact, indicate that a character or that the author was racist. And of course, on the internet, you can always find folks eager to cancel someone on the basis of their worst characteristic, regardless of how much they've also contributed in their lives. But Mars' point goes beyond that critique, one that I think reasonable folks, regardless of how they feel about wokeness, can certainly understand. In fact, Marr goes on to make the following argument. Did Columbus commit atrocities? Of course. But people back then were generally atrocious. <laughs> and this is where things started to go off the rails a bit. I suspect I don't have to spend much time explaining the fallacy in Mars' argument here, because it's fairly obvious. Even if everyone were doing something wrong, atrocious even, it wouldn't make this atrocious thing right. Moreover, Mars' premise is wrong. Even in their time, many historical figures were judged harshly by their contemporaries. Isn't it possible to acknowledge, for example, the courage required of Christopher Columbus to make his transatlantic journey, while also acknowledging what he did to the residents of the island of Hispaniola when he got there? Not everyone in 1492 sold 9- and 10-year-old girls into sexual slavery. So I ask this, what is gained by taking a moral, making a moral equivalence rather between everyone who lived in the past? What is gained from erasing the moral position of someone like Christopher Columbus and the girls he exploited, for example? Mars seems to anticipate this tension when he argues that, quote, everyone who could have afforded a slave in the past had one. By injecting wealth and power into the analysis, he seems to be doing some work to explain why some people behaved poorly and others most certainly didn't. In Mars' view, the only limitation on committing moral sins is being too poor to get away with it. But again, that's not what the historical record actually shows. 
I went ahead and Googled wealthy Americans revolutionary period and guess what? In addition to being a founding father, Benjamin Franklin was one of the country's richest people. And contrary to Marr's thesis, he was also an avid abolitionist. Moreover, he was far from the only one. Quakers began questioning slavery in the Americas as early as 1670, and a significant anti-slavery sentiment took hold in the mid-1700s. The Pennsylvania Abolition Society was founded in 1775, and by 1804, the northern states had all voted to abolish the institution of slavery. And, of course, tensions mounted so high about this moral question of owning another human being that the bloodiest American war to date was fought to resolve the issue once and for all 57 years later. And I hope I don't have to mention that quite a few black people were not big fans of slavery at the time. Quite obviously, people in the past held a range of views on the question of slavery, along with other moral questions. So why does Marr insist that historical context automatically absolves historical figures? We might ask, did Benjamin Franklin, an abolitionist, Judge Thomas Jefferson, who famously bedded an enslaved girl age 14, a girl who also happened to be the three-quarters white half-sister of his own wife, how did Quaker abolitionist Judge Franklin, who himself had two slaves? Mars sidesteps the question of whether certain historical figures might be judged by their peers by making jokes like these. Presentism. Yeah, this professor is right. It's just a way to congratulate yourself about being better than George Washington because you have a gay friend and he didn't. But I don't hear too many people actually chiding Washington for not having gay friends, nor do they fault Jefferson for using common terms for black people like Negro or not respecting his slaves' pronouns. What they question is how someone who wrote so compellingly about the intrinsic rights of men could have been so indifferent to the lives of people he held as chattel slaves. We can ask what we can learn from the gap between his ideals and his life and practice. If the goal of history is to learn from our mistakes and to approve upon our forefathers, why are some people so seemingly committed to painting historical figures as unimpeachable? Isn't growing past the mistakes of our forefathers something to celebrate rather than cover up? George Washington once described slavery as his life's only unavoidable subject of regret. Is it unfair to judge Washington against his own standards? If Washington wrestled with his own slave ownership, is it presentism for us to do the same? Jefferson described slavery as a, quote, moral depravity and as a, quote, hideous blot. James Madison called it the most oppressive dominion ever exercised man over man. Is it woke to note that the men who wrote all men are created equal didn't in fact treat all men equally? Is it presentism to interrogate what our founding fathers themselves interrogated deeply within their own lifetimes? Let's keep listening. Everybody who could afford one had a slave, including people of color. The way people talk about slavery these days, you'd think it was a uniquely American thing that we invented in 1619. But slavery throughout history has been the rule, not the exception. The Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, Romans, the Arabs, British, the early Americans, all the way up through R. Kelly. Does slavery make being common make it less bad? See, I, I hope I don't have to explain that just because multiple people, many people did a bad thing, it doesn't make it all right. All slavery is bad, no matter the color of the victim or the perpetrator. And yet Bill Maher is arguing, 
I'm not even sure what exactly at this point. Is Mar basically just doing what kids do when they're caught breaking a rule, trying to avoid blame by saying, hey, my sister did it too. Do I really have to explain at this point that two wrongs don't make a right? Moreover, it's obvious why Americans would be interested in our own country's history, isn't it? If I were an ancient Sumerian living, let's say, 150 years after the end of legal chattel slavery in Mesopotamia, or an Egyptian person living 150 years after slaves built the pyramids, I think I would be well justified in focusing on those instances of slavery. But we are Americans, living 150-odd years after the end of American slavery, and just 57 years after slave descendants finally secured equal rights under the law. So what exactly is Mars' argument here? That Egyptians had slaves, so American slavery is moot, not relevant? I, I'm just not clear. I, I'm trying to be fair here, but I, I'm missing the point entirely. Is it that no one should mention American slavery? That we should shrug it off as not that big deal in the grand scheme of things? There's three huge Abrahamic religions that are very much still interested in slavery that happened 2,000 years ago in Egypt. If every Christian, Muslim, and Jewish person can fairly judge Ramses for his cruelty against ancient Jews, why does Mar feel the need to do a whole segment about how we need to lighten up the discourse around our own homegrown slavers? No one forced him to talk about this, so I'm just really curious why this obsession with race? Speaking of the Bible, this next part is where things really start to take a turn. The Holy Bible is practically an owner's manual for slaveholders. The word slave comes from Slav because so many Slavic people were enslaved and they're as white as the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> Who do you think gathered the slaves from the interior of Africa to sell to slave traders? Africans, who also kept their own slaves. We're a species prone to making others of our species our Now we're pretty far from presentism arguments. Does Mar think that woke people believe that slavery is only bad when the slaves are black? Does he think that pointing out the existence of white slaves is an own of some kind? Is he imagining some viewer will be somewhere watching this torn between arguing against black slavery and defending the value of enslaving whites? Need I really say that all slavery is bad? Now, of course, race is an important part of the American slave story. In this country in particular, black people had a special inferior legal status as less than human for hundreds of years and then lived under an apartheid system until about 1965. Now, I know this is uncomfortable for some people to hear, but these are just the historical facts. Marr forces me to point out that blacks were singled out under the law and that race, an immutable characteristic, determined what rights you had in America, no matter your ability or achievement. That's what makes American chattel slavery especially pernicious in the eyes of some. Roman slavery wasn't based on race. It was horrible, abusive, and degrading. But race didn't bind you and your heirs to hundreds of years of servitude without any hope of freedom. Is it wrong to acknowledge this distinction? Isn't it possible to respect the historical differences between different forms of slavery around the world without diminishing the horrors of all slavery? Well, Bill Maher certainly has demonstrated the ability to understand the importance of recognizing racial harm, at least when it comes to his own people. 
When Whoopi Goldberg said earlier this year that the Holocaust was not about race, but it was about, quote, man's inhumanity to man, she was rightly criticized on the basis that she was erasing a particularized harm to Jewish people. Nazis didn't just murder people indiscriminately. They launched a pogrom against Roma the disabled into absolutely devastating effect. Jewish people. Approximately 6 million Jewish human beings were murdered not just because of man's inhumanity to man, but because they were Jewish. Though Bill Maher defended Whoopi Goldberg against being canceled at the time, he also criticized her for minimizing the role race played in the Holocaust. He said, and I quote, I totally disagree with her crazy statement. So help me understand, why does Bill Maher understand that it's wrong to minimize the targeted nature of crimes against Jewish people, but not the particular racial harm of American slavery? And what is to be gained politically from doing so? In his real-time segment, Bill Maher argues that, quote, when the truth conflicts with narrative, it's the truth that has to apologize. But when you dig into this argument, it doesn't feel like Maher is unpacking truths. It feels like he's sweeping them under the rug like he's flattening the nuanced, tangled reality of history to tell a story about good guys and bad guys that exculpates people with wealth and power. Bill Maher argued that every rich person who could have slaves did. Well, we've established that that's not true, so I challenge Bill Maher to ask himself why, if he had lived 200 years ago, he finds it so difficult to imagine that his values wouldn't have aligned with the half of the country that fought a civil war so that I could be sitting here giving this report today. Now, Bill Maher did have one good point. I certainly have no interest in making anybody feel bad about history. Guilting voters is a liberal game and I'll leave that to them. But it's worth taking a moment to consider who is served by a narrative that goes out of its way to minimize oppression and protect the historical memory of wealthy elites, regardless of race. Maher's decent point? Sometimes liberals do, in creative context, overuse race and gender fluid casting for the sake of representation. A couple of years ago, they made a movie called The Aeronauts about the scientists who broke the record for the highest altitude in a balloon. In fact, they were both men. But the movie made one of them a woman because, as the director explained, representation is important. <laughs> so true. Women never get enough credit for the things they didn't do. I disagree with that casting choice. There are enough real historical women that folks could write about. Let's see some of those scripts about those people. But it should be noted that race and gender bending and casting is not just an invention of the left. Some might argue it's a response to some pretty conservative whitewashing over the years. Look at this clip someone put together in response to the recent controversy around the Black Little Mermaid. You know what? You're right. I mean, just imagine. Imagine if they cast Angelina Jolie as Afro-Latina woman Marion Pearl. Or if they cast white actor Jack Palance as Cuban Fidel Castro. Or if they got the white actor Ben Affleck to play the Mexican-American man Antonio J. Mendez. Or if they got the white actress Elizabeth Taylor to play the Egyptian Cleopatra. Or a white actor like Jim Sturgis playing Asian-American Jeffrey Ma. Or if they got white actor Sean Connery to play Moroccan Malai Ahmed Arasuni. Or if they put little white Shirley Temple in blackface as a slave child. Or they cast white actor Joseph Fiennes to play black man Michael Jackson. Or even if they got white actor Johnny Depp to play a Native American man. Or white Welsh actress Catherine Zeta-Jones to play Griselda Blanco. 
Or could you even imagine them putting white actress Katherine Hepburn in yellow face to play a Chinese farmer? I mean, we couldn't imagine white actress Jennifer Connelly playing a Salvadorian Alicia Nash, right? Or white actor John Wayne playing the Mongolian Genghis Khan? Or white actor Christian Bale playing the Egyptian Hebrew Moses? Or perhaps Marlon Brando as Emiliano Zapata? I mean, no one could ever imagine white actor Fred Astaire in blackface playing Billy Robinson, right? <laughs> That's only about half of that clip. You should watch the whole thing, but I think the lesson here is clear. We've gotta stop just politicizing everything. People may have takes you don't like, cite historical truths that make you uncomfortable, make casting decisions that you don't agree with. But we have to stop making this about how the other side is uniquely evil or acting in bad faith or is somehow out to get you. I promise you the only ones making money off of this divisive rhetoric are millionaires like Bill Maher. Meanwhile, have your wages gone up recently? Is the woke person you work with someone you should hate because they like a movie you don't like? Or is it someone you can join with in the fight for more pay, better hours, and sick days? Casting Michael Jackson is pretty tough, though. Let's <laughs> <laughs> all be clear. What's that Kanye West line? I got a white, my white light-skinned friend looking like Michael Jackson. Got a dark-skinned friend looking like Michael Jackson. I love that. I, I was cracking up through that montage. But, you know, people do silly things, you know? Yeah, and look, I agree that uh, I, I, casting's gotten a lot a lot much much more sensitive in that regard i would probably argue too sensitive uh but you gave a lot of uh past examples obviously the blackface examples i don't think anyone would disagree with those but even the intermediate um like the lady who was cleopatra or other choices but then they got mad that uh, gal gadot got cast as cleopatra even though she's of the same region yeah. and the egyptian family ruling family was actually from so it some sure. some of this then the woke people go to go sure. oh that's not exactly the right and, like part of acting is trying to portray someone not I, I it should be within the bounds of like believable and plausible and just not you know it's more an issue of just not casting like people of color at all right you want to yes. have more diverse representation yes and than, i think that's part of yeah. why at a certain point there was this kind of shoehorning of yeah. of people and you know non-white people into these kinds of roles i think increasingly we have scripts that actually include people of color right. there's more interest in historical figures uh, sorry historical periods that actually feature a lot of yeah. people of color but kind of it matters whether the, if it's a real historical person there's some uh, I, I think burden to be somewhat within the realm of accuracy when, when it's if it's a fictional character. Everybody got really mad. So many people they got mad at uh, Tilda Swinton when she was cast as the Ancient One in the Doctor Strange franchise because it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a East Asian Eastern mm -hmm. Asia character, Buddhist character. Mm -hmm. But like Tilda Swinton is a really cool and eccentric actress playing a magic time lord person and they, i thought the casting was absolutely fine and she did a good job and it was yeah stupid I, to be mad. I do think that sometimes frustration about specific casting choices is less about the person and more about a broader frustration about inequality in society mm -hmm. that people are trying to fix through a, a movie casting choice mm -hmm. and i wrote an article about um uh, a cultural appropriation that basically made the same argument that sometimes, you know, it's not really about whether Kim Kardashian is wearing braids or not that people are really mad at. It's about whether or not we live in a society where people who wear braids to work are considered to be unprofessionally if they look a certain way, but not if they're white. And, you know, all these broader inequities mm -hmm. are being like played out on Kim Kardashian's head in a way that aren't necessarily fair to Kim Kardashian and right. which really sidestep the issue. Um, and certainly, I think the, the pessimism arguments that uh, Bill Yeah, Mike I want to go are, back to the rest of your, that are was legitimate. the end of your. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, 
Okay, so I think the the point of because you, you were very you know what is the point of bringing this this up or saying these things? I think the point on like the slavery stuff is to is to because right we, we agree everything you're saying is correct and you're acknowledging and pointing out that well yes there was slavery in all sorts of other societies. Are you saying that makes it like slavery fine or we shouldn't talk about it? I don't think I mean I can't speak for Bill Maher obviously, but I don't think that's the reason it gets brought up in other contexts. I think it is to. Uh, to to push back on a, a a narrative you often hear from people on the left that slavery or it seems like they're suggesting that evils like slavery are a uniquely white or uniquely western or uniquely British imposition on planet Earth but I, when they who, are who clearly says not. That? I mean, I, those words uniquely white, uniquely British, uniquely American. I've, I, look, I've, I'm not going to say it's never been said because there's always somewhere, somewhere who's saying something. But, I mean, the argument is that we're talking about American slavery because we're Americans and it just happened. Mm -hmm. You know, unlike Mesopotamia, we're here now and we're living with the consequences of what happened in our own country. And it does sometimes feel like these deflections to other parts of the world and other eras are intended to keep us from talking about what our community and our country has a responsibility to do given the legacy that we have here. Uh, that's that's my only concern. I'll give you like I have I've heard people on the left. Maybe they're maybe they don't actually think this and they're just saying it kind of incautiously in a sort of you know, ranting against things they don't like. Like I've heard capitalism invented slavery, or slavery is a result of capitalism. But capitalism is like 300 years old, and slavery, as you pointed out in your radar, can be found in ancient Babylon and Sumeria and Egypt, etc. Yeah, so it's I not think, a. Yeah, I think those are a little bit of rhetorical, rhetorical gestures that don't mean a ton. And I also do think there are specific ways that slavery has manifested in different places that are specific and unique from each other, including American chattel slavery, which had some specific characteristics that we could get into at another time. Um, but I think that the broad point should be that if someone is trying to claim that only white people are evil and only white people do a certain thing, that's obviously not true. And if saying that repeatedly or saying that before any conversation of slavery will help people feel less defensive and be willing to engage with what happened in this country, I'm happy to do so. All right. And one more point I had to make. Um, I think the Right. We should put historical figures in their proper context, and we should acknowledge that these people we revere as the founders of our country were, to varying degrees, very flawed. Some more flawed than others. Thomas Jefferson, very flawed. Um, Benjamin Franklin, not nearly as flawed, et cetera. The, the test is, do, the, do these persons' contribution, positive contributions to history outweigh whatever their failings were or whatever? And, and were their failings particularly out of place for that time? Uh, like you can look at like Jefferson Davis or John C. Calhoun or, or Robert E. Lee and say that the thing they're most known for was fighting or advancing an evil cause, so they should not be remembered fondly. A, a, a test that I think a George Washington and uh, and uh, and so on easily pass, or more, much more easily pass. Maybe some of those figures, maybe Woodrow Wilson, doesn't pass so easily. Yeah. And th so that would be how I would. Yeah, I think put it's it. fair. And this question of whether we should remember anybody fondly or not, I don't know that. That's really the goal here of history. I don't have fond or not fond thoughts about George Washington. He's just a guy. He's complicated like all of us. I'm not going to judge him out of his own context. I'm not going to be mad at Shirley Temple, poor little thing, <laughs> for, for being put in blackface. Things are context-specific. There are people who need to learn that lesson more than they have. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, I want to separate, I think, some legitimate questions about presentism from this broader conversation that seems to be, in some ways, downplaying what's happened in our own country in recent history. All right. Well, look at that. We had a productive exchange <laughs> on a uh, spicy subject. Always <laughs> like to see it. More rising right after this.
Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered the partial mobilization of roughly 300,000 reservists in Russia on Wednesday amid several setbacks in its invasion of Ukraine. In an address to the nation, Putin railed against NATO and Western allies for supplying Ukraine with military aid and vowed to use, quote, all means available in defending Russian efforts in Ukraine, alluding to nuclear threats. Here's some of his speech. Для обеспечения безопасности нашего народа и людей на освобожденных территориях считаю необходимым поддержать предложение Министерства обороны и Генерального штаба о проведении в Российской Федерации частичной мобилизации. Повторю, речь идет именно о частичной мобилизации. То есть призыву на военную службу будут подлежать только граждане, которые в настоящий момент состоят в запасе. И прежде всего те, кто проходил службу в рядах вооруженных сил, имеет определенные военно-учетные специальности и соответствующий опыт. Призванные на военную службу перед отправкой в части в обязательном порядке будут проходить дополнительную военную подготовку с учетом опыта специальной военной операции. Указ о частичной мобилизации подписан. В соответствии с законодательством об этом официально, письмами, Будут сегодня проинформированы Палаты Федерального Собрания, Совет Федерации и Государственной Думы. Мобилизационные мероприятия начнутся сегодня, с 21 сентября. U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Bridget Brink called it a, quote, sham referenda and mobilization, while another Ukrainian official responded by tweeting, life has a great sense of humor. Mm. Well, well I, there's nothing funny about there's this. There's nothing funny about <laughs> nuclear war. And this is, this is kind or of the... Or conscription of 300,000 people. conscription, of course. This is where we started talking about this, uh, you know, six, seven months ago, however long it's been at this point, with this threat of, is this going to ultimately end or come up to the brink of nuclear conflict? And a lot of folks, I will say, poo-pooed it then and have poo-pooed it since, dismissing that as a kind of accelerationist, alarmist concern. And I think that they did that because if that's really on the table, if you really appreciate what it means to engage with a nuclear power like that, it makes the risks that have already been taken thus far in terms of engaging in this conflict seem that much more insane. Right. I, I've never thought that it was alarmist to be concerned yeah. about the threat of nuclear we war. Even, even if it's a, oh, thank you, <laughs> even if it's a slight chance, yeah. nuclear war could mean it, it could mean the deaths of millions. It could mean the deaths of billions of people. Yeah. So it, it could mean our planet becoming inhospitable for a hundred years. Yeah. So even if there's a like like a point two percent chance of it. You still don't. You don't want to roll the dice, even with those odds. Um, you know, I mean, we've seen with COVID that even a very small chance of death from COVID yeah. can still result in millions and millions of deaths. I mean, you're, each individual has a very even, even in higher age groups yeah. has a at the beginning even had a very low likelihood of succumbing to the disease. But when confronted over and over and over right. and over again for the opportunity to roll those dice, yeah. eventually some people, eventually the thing happens. Yeah. So it, it's it's not. Uh, I don't think it was wrong to be fearful of that or to be more fearful of it now. Um, I, I mean, I will say I, I think the Russian forces are discovering a lesson that our own forces have discovered, that many occupying forces discover, which is that it is easy to, to kill, to blow up buildings, to occupy. But then the other side can have guerrilla forces that resist. And even, you know, even occupying, frankly, countries that seemed like they'd be more 
they'd be easier to conquer, mm-hmm. um, have gone horribly for the U.S., from Vietnam to Korea to, to we, we blew up, we destroyed every building in North Korea during the Korean War. It did, but it didn't matter. We still, we still couldn't win that war mm-hmm. in any real sense. Um, and that's what we found in the Middle East. And, and the Ukrainian uh, resistance fighters have more going for them in many, in many ways than those resistance forces. So I, I think Putin is learning a lesson that r- really he should have known all, all along yeah. and is putting himself, I, I don't know that he's at risk of actually losing his power, but he's putting himself in a more perilous political position. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he has, has had the effect of driving people to NATO, other, other countries. That if his goal was to stop, uh, was to short circuit NATO uh, unity, it's totally failed. Yeah, that's, that's true. Mm. Well, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called on world leaders to forego neutrality while speaking with former U.S. President Bill Clinton at the revived Clinton Global Initiative event on Tuesday, saying, quote, in this world, you cannot stand on the sidelines. Meanwhile, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro renewed calls, excuse me, for negotiations and ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine, but denounced economic sanctions and isolation, saying in a speech at the U.N. General Assembly, the consequences of the conflict are already being felt in world prices for food, fuel, and other supplies. This impact puts us all against the goals of sustainable development. So this is right. This, this story <laughs> about totally how right. members of the global south haven't been willing to jump on board this war train, have not been willing to come out of a kind of a neutral uh, status with respect to this conflict. There were, was a South African official that said something similar. And there's been a lot of weird pressure from Europe and the West to get these people on board. And their typical kind of uh, types of arguments about, um, you know, it's you somehow don't care about vulnerable people. You are, you know, big, bigoted or racist or whatever it is for not wanting to be a part of whatever the cause is at any given time, fall flat when you are the global West, you are the global North, and you are making these claims at countries that are insecure, food insecure, that have less income, have less uh, GDP, and who are basically saying, we don't want this to keep going because we're the ones that are going to take the first hit. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And this war has had horrible economic consequences for South America, for for everyone, for everyone in the whole world. It needs to come to an end. Now is the time, I mean, now is always the time for negotiations. Yeah. They should they should come to the table. The Russians should come to the table. Putin should do have some safe, uh, face-saving measure and end this because... They, you know, they're, they're going to maybe they'll make more gains and then they'll eventually lose those. Like they're going to have to occupy this country for a, for decades, to, which is what we found, which is what we discovered. Yeah. How many times do superpowers need to learn this lesson? You can you can kill people, you can take their land, but they fight back. They never give it up. Yeah, and with respect to coming to the table, look, I love that Katie Halper, frequent guest of the show. You know, she often says that these conflicts, in one way or the other, from negotiation, the question is: is are your actions getting us closer to a deal that both sides can agree on or farther apart. And as we saw, we had another frequent guest on the show, Aaron Maté, uh, spoke about this here about a month or so ago, that there was this reporting that there had been a deal much earlier in the process that the West had basically bungled, that they had intentionally thwarted and largely kept out of the public eye because they want there to be a perception that they are not ever in any part responsible for this or the unreasonable ones in the bargaining table here. And this isn't to say it's the West's fault per se, but at the end of the day, you know, I think there needs to be a lot more transparency about what each side is actually asking for instead of this constant breathless coverage about who's bombed whom. Absolutely. This is a, a, a great moment for the Ukrainians that they've taken back 
back uh, a large part of the country. And now is the time to end this war through diplomatic means. We should not be willing to fund uh, this conflict to supply weapons to it without any accompanying understanding that they need to have a deal one probably that results in Russia getting something, or else they're never going to give it up, too. Right. And we'll just have more people dying, Ukrainians and Russians. Yeah. I mean, feel these conscripted Russian soldiers, they have no idea. They don't, I presume most of them don't want to fight, but they have little understanding of what is even at stake. Most of us don't really understand what's at stake. What is at stake? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, with war, you can't, you know, more, win a war any more than you can an earthquake. It's just, mm. it need, it's, it's harmful, it's killing people, and it mm. needs to come to an end. Mm. We'll have more rising right after this. CNN host Don Lemon is catching major flack online for this exchange made on air about colonial reparations. Let's watch. The, those who are asking uh, for reparations for colonialism, and they're wondering, you know, $100 billion, $24 billion here and there, $500 million there. Some people want to be paid back, and, uh, and members of the public are wondering, why are we suffering when you are, you know, you have all of this vast wealth? Those are legitimate concerns. Well, I think you're right about reparations in terms of if people want it, though, what they need to do is you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain. Where was the beginning of the supply chain? That was in Africa, and when across the entire world, when the slavery was taking place, which was the first nation in the world that abolished sla uh, slavery? The first nation in the world to abolish it. It was started by William Wilberforce, was the British. In, in Great Britain, they abolished slavery. 2,000 naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery. Why? Because the African kings were rounding up their own people. They had them on cages, waiting in the beaches. No one was running into Africa to get them. And I think you're totally right. If reparations need to be paid, we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffed in cages. Absolutely. That's where they should start. And maybe, I don't know, the descendants of those families where they died at the, in the high seas trying to stop the slavery, that those families should receive something, too, I think, at the same time. It's an interesting discussion, Hillary. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, let's get right into it. Joining us now to weigh in is Newsweek contributor and business consultant, Denise Long. Denise, I know you're fired up about this subject. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. So tell us what you made of this clip. I think you disagree with the guest. Yeah, I think it was a shit show. <laughs> I think it was uh, colonizers and those responsible for exceptional crimes against humanity around the globe to wash their hands and place blame completely elsewhere. So my take on this is that perhaps Don ran out of time, let's hope, and or he didn't have a response to this uh, egregious bastardization of uh, accountability. So for me, as a seventh generation American descendant of slaves, my thought on this is really that all parties are responsible, including if we're able to locate and find the Africans who were responsible for trading uh, their people into slavery. But we also know exactly where to find the, the Brits and those who continue to live high off the hog from slave labor. And it's amazing to me that this woman talks about the 2,000 people who died to make right egregious 300-year history as them getting reparations, because we already know that the British spent what is equivalent to 17 
trillion, is it billion, billion in reparations to the slave owners once the slave trade was finally abolished in 1807 in Britain. So they don't get a pass for ending what they shouldn't have been involved with in the first place. Nobody told them to go buy enslaved people. Yeah, this argument is really interesting to me, and I talk about it a little bit in my radar today, that somehow the existence of people who sold other people into slavery cuts off the uh, responsibility of people who actively participated and profited handsomely for, from a slave trade for years. If I were to buy a defective car that someone then recklessly drives into me, the law doesn't say that I'm not allowed to hold a reckless driver responsible just because there was also a, a defect. There's something called you know shared, shared um, uh, liability here, contributory negligence here. Um, the other thing that I do feel like I really must correct is that uh, people have been saying this a lot. England, 100%, was not the first country to ban slavery. Uh, Haiti was. Haiti had a, a slave revolt. It was not ended at the benevolence of the white overlords. Haitians rose up and freed themselves, and as a consequence, has been punished harshly by the international community, which saw that as a real threat to their slavery uh, across the world. That was their a really colonies. bloody incident, uh, though. Yes, it was. They killed all the white people on the island. Yeah, they, they cleared, killed all the people who were enslaving them, correct, on the island, which happens in war, and it's something Women that we celebrate the context of the American Revolution when we threw off our colonial overlords and Haitians obviously have the right to self-determination and do that as mm -hmm. well. And it's very much celebrated by enslaved people uh, across the world. And it was an inspiration to the abolitionist movement here in the United States. And here's an important point. I want you to respond to this as well. You know, after that happened, Haiti paid to France reparations uh, in the amount Hello. of 112 million francs to France. So, I mean, what do you make of this return to this theme that it is the people who were enslaved that have all the responsibility here in terms of um, paying reparations in these kinds of contexts? So France needs to pay that money back with interest. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. And we know the ways France has been involved with uh, subverting and uh, let's go ahead and call it assassinating leaders on the African continent um, and how that has also um, affected, slowed, been an, a barrier to growth and development there. Yet there's this narrative going around that people are trying to sell, especially as reparations in America and with CARICOM uh, increases its momentum and its public support, both among the descendants of the enslaved, as well as among regular folk who understand that when you build a nation uh, based on slave wealth and you deprive those people of citizenship rights, wealth accumulation and the like, you are indebted to those people to repair the harm that has been caused if we are ever going to get to a state of peace and reconciliation. And I just want to correct something that I said earlier. I said no one told them to go and purchase slaves. That's actually not true. The Catholic Church was heavily involved, the Church of England and the like, and actually issued uh, papal bulls, letters from the Pope, edicts from the Pope, saying go forth and colonize Africans, Muslims, and Native Americans and the rest of the Western Hemisphere in order to take their lands for the glory of their version of Christ. Uh, so there's multiple elements of accountability here, uh, top to bottom, left to right. Yeah, look, I think, but so my hang up we hear with the whole kind of reparations discourse, look, if you can demonstrate that if, if you are a descendant, maybe a, a more direct descendant, a, a child, grandchild, great-grandchild, great-great-great-grandchild of uh, slaves and, and 
there's a specific the, those the enslavers their descendants are still around and still have wealth in their estate then i could see why maybe you're owed something from them when you get into the realm of you no know, like the entire society owes everyone of a certain ethnicity or some independent of their circumstances that's when i think most people or many people say well now we're just talking about a general like transfer of wealth independent of actual any legacy of slavery well, what about the crown, yeah. since that's the topic here? I, I'm not, not going to defend the monarchy. I, I wasn't even defending the monarchy. You made me sound like I was defending it because you were defending what that crazy professor said. But no, the crown should end and give that wealth back to whoever. I don't care. But, um, so but that's different than what I'm getting at. Go ahead. Let's address that. The entire nation and the entire world, particularly the uh, Western world, which is European, um, benefited from chattel slavery. And if you've mismanaged the wealth that you stole for 300 years in the case of Britain, and then, you know, 100 some odd years, 150 years, or actually 250 years, what am I saying? If in the case of the United States, are we now to write that off because you have uh, wasted the wealth? And the reality is the wealth, the wealth has not been wasted. They are still very wealthy countries, the United States and Britain. And we know that Britain or the England um, is responsible for ceding the United States here and contributed to the enslavement here. And so it's not just the families who participated in it because the government allowed it, uh, codified it in a way into the constitution. Think about the Dred Scott decision and, and what that led to uh, eventually with the abolishment of slavery. So yes, the entire country is is indebted to the descendants of slaves because there are ways that we could not get justice while our enslaved ancestors were still alive. And it's not just enslavement, it's a lineage of people, specific groups of families, 40 million in the United States of America, who can tie their family back to at least the 1800s in the United States who were under the weight and burden and terror of enslavement, but not just that, the 150 years after emancipation that led to the lynching era, Jim Crow and deprivation of wealth. And we still experience that discrimination today. So it's a lineage based claim, not an ethnic claim, not a racial claim. It's a specific harm, specific harms that happen to a line of uh, descendants of families uh, currently alive in the United States. Hmm. That's most certainly the case. I'm happy to share my uh, the papers from my great great grandfather who fought for his freedom in the in the Civil War. Thank you so much, Denise, for joining us for this conversation today. Thank you. Glad to be here. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Millions of people in Puerto Rico were left in the dark after Hurricane Fiona swept through the island over the weekend. The storm left the island in ruins, washing away bridges, neighborhoods, and leaving over three million people powerless. A grim reminder of the devastation that Hurricane Maria left behind in 2017. In addition to the havoc these storms continue to wreak, what has been equally frustrating to many Puerto Ricans is the state of their electric grid, which was crumbling before Hurricane Fiona. Prior to 2021, government-owned Puerto Rico Electric, Electric Power Authority oversaw the grid, but private company Luma Energy took over last summer. With ongoing power outages and the still fragile power infrastructure, many are angry and they want Luma out. Here to talk about how the privatization of the power grid in Puerto Rico is playing out on the island is journalist Angelica Serrano-Roman. Angelica, welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for Dan Wright. Tell us more about, first, uh, tell us you know, what you're seeing, how widespread is uh, the devastation, what's going on? Right, so we still don't know the extent of the damage caused by Hurricane Fiona, judging by the videos and photos. Several people may have lost their homes. Um, Hurricane uh, Fiona dumped a lot of rain, causing flooding in communities that had never imagined their communities could be flooded. Um, as of today, 74% of the island remains uh, without electricity and 45% of the population has no water service. Um, and at, so far, uh, four deaths associated with the hurricane have been reported by the government. So how do we get here uh, with respect to these private companies? I mean, did they really play a role in this crisis? How much of this was unavoidable because of the, the significance of the weather incidents? And how much is this about uh, bad infrastructure planning and development? Right. So, you know, our system is, is well known that our system is very weak um, and most of the power grids uh, in Puerto Rico um, is not what you see on the mainland where you see underground wires and substations. So things like improper vegetation management can leave people without power. Uh, Puerto Rico's on the island um, say they knew that the island was not ready for another hurricane. What Fiona did was to show it out there. Um, so. As you may know, Luma Energy is a private entity that owns the transmission and, and distribution of power in, in Puerto Rico. And the hiring of Luma was supposed to make things better, uh, basically lower costs, improve service, and, and fix problems. Um, so when when Luma came, uh, the uh, system, what is called the System Average Interruption Duration Index lower for a few months. Um, but from then on, um, from, from January 2022, uh, the interruption duration has been increasing. Um, there's an independent body in Puerto Rico called the Puerto Rico Energy Bureau. Uh, they analyzed Luma's performance uh, in the past year, and they uh, concluded that the company has not improved service. Um, furthermore, the price of electricity has increased a couple of times the past year. Um, Luma, what Luma is saying is that they, these things take time and people have to cooperate. Um, that's what they what they say in a press conference. Um, it's important to mention that uh, FEMA officials um, said last week that only 40%, 40 million dollars have been dispersed, dispersed from the 90 billion approved uh, for the reconstruction of Puerto yeah. Rico's electric grid. Um, what FEMA is saying is that, you know, th these projects were approved um, in, in April. So it's not a surprise uh, that, you know, the amount is so little. Um, so that's what we, we, we know so far. Mm. Well, it sounds like then maybe it's kind of too soon to tell whether this move, uh, you know, has, is it going to be beneficial in, in the long run? Yes. Uh, you know, this will be a hard task to, for Luma to fix uh, years of you know, improper management of, of the electric grid. Um, and yeah, definitely um, harder for, for Puerto Ricans because they're paying more money and they're being uh, left in the dark. Well, what's the explanation for why it is that folks are paying more money? I, I mean, I can't help but make some analogy to what the story is coming out of Mississippi, where, again, there was a private contract that was issued that was supposed to help manage some of the water issues that were ongoing in Jackson, Mississippi, but resulted similarly in higher water bills for the people that live there and lower quality of service. In that case, the bills were higher because it was an automated system that seemed to be conveniently malfunctioning in a way that uh, made more profits for the company. In this case, with Luma, to what do you attribute the higher bills? Yeah, I can't attribute uh, anything, um, but 
what Luma is saying is that this this will take longer and it, they, they need more um, um, you know time to get these things fixed um, also uh, one of the challenges um, uh, I think is in, in Puerto Rico is that um, even though they have some money assigned and you know allocated uh, this uh, FEMA program is a reimbursement program meaning they have to complete the projects and Again, their first projects were just approved in April. Um, so Luma has to present the bills uh, for the work uh, done in, 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 in Puerto Rico uh, so they can uh, get this reimbursement. And in well, addition to material costs of rising in, in Puerto Rico and in, in the U.S., so it's, it's you know, something that will, will take longer time. Well, my understanding is that 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 problem you just you just hinted at, and the energy problem in general in Puerto Rico, is made so much worse by the Jones Act, which uh, really hamper, which you know compels um, shipping within the United States be done by American ships, and is especially a problem for Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and some other uh, locations. Um, can you talk about how that has has driven up um, energy uh, issues, if that is a contributing factor? Right. So, yeah, this Young's Act, uh, it's an old, uh, you know, law that it, it really is just increases uh, everything for Puerto Ricans. Food, everything is higher. Uh, it's, it's, it's more uh, pricey because of, of this uh, uh, law. People in Puerto Rico have asked uh, for this uh, determination, this law to get ripped, um, to not, um, you know, because it's it's really not really it's not really helping Puerto Ricans, um, and Puerto Rico has to export basically um, most of the food they consume and most of the things um, they need. So uh, yeah, it's really uh, important for for Puerto Ricans. Hmm. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us and shedding light on this uh, calamity. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll have more rising in just a minute. According to the Texas Tribune, three Venezuelan migrants flown from San Antonio, Texas to Martha's Vineyard last week filed a lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other Florida officials. The lawsuit alleges that the migrants were tricked into traveling on the airplane with false promises of money, work, housing, and food. The Texas Tribune says the suit claims DeSantis and officials, quote, designed and executed a premeditated, fraudulent, and illegal scheme centered on exploiting this vulnerability for the sole purpose of advancing their own personal financial and political interests. Democratic strategist Demisha Cross and President of Bienvenido, Abraham Enriquez, are here to weigh in on this with us. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. All right. I, I want to ask you first, Abraham, do you, what do you make of this argument that this was a misrepresentation, that people would not have gone on the plane but for uh, being induced with false promises? Thank you, Brianna. Well, I, I first want to start off by saying that as a first-generation Mexican-American, I'm very sympathetic to the immigrant community and, and what's really going on at the border right now. However, this lawsuit really does strike me a little bit as uh, election year politics, because as you and I now know, Florida has released the waivers uh, that the immigrants or migrants signed, both in English and in Spanish. Uh, but let's be honest, uh, these migrants were in pretty bad shape 
uh, at the Texas border, right? And they were flown uh, to a sanctuary city where they were getting lodging, food, water, provided for resources. And when you look at what's going on in Texas and Arizona and even Florida, over 2 million illegal crossings has happened this year alone. Um, our cities are pretty overwhelmed and we can't really sustain this. Uh, so, you know, if you live in the upper west side of Manhattan, it, it's easy for you to have uh, this uh, kind of indifferent opinion on open border policies. But down here in Texas, specifically South Texas, where I'm at today, these are our schools, these are our communities, and these are our resources that are being strained. Yeah, what do you think about this topic, Amisha? Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, outrage from um, Democrats, from the media about you know what DeSantis has done here. What do you think about it? I'm disgusted. Uh, as a native of Chicago, a sanctuary city in a sanctuary state, and a state that was also in a city that also saw a blessing of undocumented immigrants as well, the reaction that I have is the same as many uh, Democratic leaders in the sense that this is atrocious. It's a humanitarian crisis. Republicans, specifically those who are eyeing uh, the presidential election in 2024, are utilizing this to bolster their base. They're utilizing this tool and creating this pawn game of human lives. It's disgusting because these are individuals, these undocumented individuals are people who are running away from communist terrorism. These are people who are running to save their lives. These are people who are sick. These are people who need assistance. These are people who we should be doing our best to ensure are taken care of. And I think that in Florida, where we see Ron DeSantis doing this, where we see a governor who literally earmarked $12 million to ensure that he was dehumanizing and providing the worst treatment to these individuals and shipping them to places that they had never been, um, oftentimes without any any knowledge of or without any, any awareness of where they were going. And I compare what we just saw happen um, with the immigrants in Martha's Vineyard to, quite frankly, um, a, a kidnapping of sorts. You tell people that you're going to give them certain things, food, shelter, um, jobs, money, in many ways, they knew that these were lies to begin with. It's frustrating that they were able to actually bamboozle these individuals. And to be quite frank, um, individuals who are in poverty, whether they are undocumented or whether they are American citizens, if you promise them the core elements of life and safety, they are going to jump on that. I know people on the south side of Chicago, you talk to them about free food, housing, um, being able to be safe, they're going to go wherever you wherever you ship them off to. So it, it's not... Uh, it's not erroneous to think that these individuals would sign up for these things. The issue is that they were misled. The issue is that they were positing humanitarian effort and humanitarian relief outside of legitimate um, housing supports that are temporary housing supports for undocumented immigrants. They lied to these individuals and they put them in places that they should not have been. That is frustrating. Well, Abraham, let me just ask you this, because, you know, I know a lot of folks aren't going to be persuaded. They're going to say, well, if they sign something, then they accepted the risk. They accepted what was being offered to them. But I wonder, you, you brought up this question of resources. And according to the lawsuit, defendants uh, paid $615,000 for chartered planes at the cost of $12,300 per passenger. You know, and this is out of what is apparently about a $12 million fund for relocating migrants. Is this the best use uh, for a party that is, I think, really focused on government waste and spending of resources to help this population get through the tangled web of immigration services we have in this country? Uh, well, you know, I, I really want to emphasize that Governor DeSantis, Governor Abbott, really have really only taken the lead uh, in the example of President Biden. I mean, I don't think we should forget when President Biden, in the middle of the night, uh, was flying immigrants all over the the country to drop them off into other red states, right? 
Uh, and so when we look at the budget and, and we look at the allocation, the resources to uh, putting immigrants and migrants in sanctuary cities where their laws uh, and their policies actually promote open border crossings uh, and illegal crossings. Uh, I think when you come down to South Texas and you spend time on the border, Brownsville, uh, El Paso, where I'm at, uh, you look at the, the way migrants are being treated, the way migrants are being uh, sheltered, uh, it, it's almost borderline inhumane because we just can't keep up with the amount of illegal Across I appreciate uh, that. I appreciate so, that, Abraham. But I'm just curious about this one question. Obviously, I have many criticisms of Joe Biden, but unless the bar is everything that Joe Biden does, the Republican Party should actually match. I'm curious whether you think this is actually a good use of resources. Flying uh, migrants who are being overcrowded in shelters that sometimes have no food, no water, no shelters to cities that uh, are in the book sanctuary cities that promote giving food, water, and shelter, to me, absolutely makes sense. Why $12,000 a, a migrant? Whatever it takes to make sure that these migrants are being well taken care of. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Amisha, I, I think this goes to a point that I, I've made on the show, which is that while I, I do agree uh, with you that this, you know, this is a kind of political stunt, um, it is the case that migrants move throughout the, are free to move throughout the countries if they've sought asylum status while their claims are adjudicated. They, there is no expectation or requirement that they stay in Texas or wherever else. Um, and in fact, they are, they are sometimes moved by the federal government, especially if there's a custody issues, if they're underage, you have to find um, housing for them. So while Martha's Vineyard might not have been the ideal destination, it, it is the case that migrants can and will be moved of their own volition and by the government throughout the country to places like Chicago, like New York, et cetera. So it, it, it was, I think it's a little um, confusing, uh, or for lack of a better term, for some Democratic officials and media people to say that, oh, you know, we, we're just not prepared to, to, to have these people. I mean, if you have these policies, you're going to get these people eventually, is the argument. Acting within the ramifications of federal government, which there are certain things to your point that I believe immigration reform, um, immigration, immigration reform processes should address. But with that being said, when a when immigration, border security, when these individuals move folks around, that is a very different conversation than what we're seeing from governors who don't even have the status point to make those decisions on their own. So watching this happen and and watching these individuals be insanely inhumanely treated in the process is quite frankly disgusting. With that being said, yes, a lot of the cities that they are going to, with the exception of Martha's Vineyard, are larger cities, have um, more robust resources, a different type of tax base. Um, that is, in fact, true. I don't expect for small town Texas to have the same as, as New York or L.A. or Chicago. But with that being said, uh, I do believe that if Republicans really wanted to help migrants, as what as 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 was somewhat stated by by the other panelists, if it was about um, them trying to provide food, shelter, or, or do some do things of that sort in places where it would make sense for them, they would also be working with the federal government. They would be talking to their Republican counterparts in D.C. in Congress to be able to move forward comprehensive immigration reform. They are refusing to do that. There is an immigration crisis, but that crisis isn't going to be solved by DeSantis or Abbott basically busing or flying whomever they feel like to states that they that, that they have in angst against and to basically create this 
this pseudo regime against democratic democratic run cities and democratic run states. That's what is happening. They are using these individuals as pawns and hoping that it will help flip some seats or in, in the Republicans favor come midterms. That's what's happening here. This has nothing to do with overrun cities. This has nothing to do with them actually trying to mobilize and shift resources or get assistance for these individuals. They could care less. They are utilizing this basically as a slap in the face to Democratic administrations. Hmm. Well, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. I want to thank both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll have more rising right after this. Stick around. This morning, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre attempted to walk back President Biden's assertion that the pandemic is over, telling MSNBC hosts that he didn't really mean it. Karine, the president also in the 60 Minutes interview said that the pandemic is over. There's been quite a bit of pushback to that uh, statement by the president. Where is he today on that? So just to step back for a second, what we saw during that interview, uh, 60 minute interview, when he made those comments, he was walking through uh, the the Detroit uh, car show, the halls of the Detroit car show, and he was looking around. We have to remember the last time that they had held that event was three years ago. Even as we're talking about Unga, the president's going to speak shortly, as I just mentioned, we that hasn't been held in, in person for about three Three years as well. So we are in a different time. He's been very consistent about that. I don't know what that has to do with anything. I mean, look, in all fairness to Biden, he was asked the question, is the pandemic over? And he said, yes. And he's like, he parroted the language back. I don't know that he would randomly have used that exact formulation. No take backs. He said, yes. Yeah, that, I mean, that's fine. But it, it is true that like, it all depends on what you mean by over. You know what yeah. I mean? We're all having this weird relativistic conversation. Obviously, to Green's point, like, we live in a different world than we lived in a year ago. I couldn't even tell her point, really. Yeah, I don't Because I don't it, at, at first, I thought she was going to say, well, he means it's over if you're in, like, an empty car <laughs> facility. Like, I thought she was going to try to do a, like, well, you know. Well, no, she's, but, but she didn't. I, I, I honestly couldn't no, she, understand she's saying where she was that going with the, it. The very fact that he was there taking that tour is reflective of the fact that we're in a very different kind of posture than we were yeah. a year or two ago, which is obviously true. I think the question people have is, are we in a different posture because the nature of the pandemic lessening or the fact of having vaccines that lessen the worst effects and outcomes of getting COVID have changed the dynamic and allow us to be open? Or is it because government policy simply was that we had to reopen for economic reasons and that we are continuing toward a false sense of things being quote unquote over when in fact the threat still looms large? And that's the question people want clarity on. Well, it's a combination of all those things, right? We have, I mean, we talk about it on the show all the time, but we have kicked COVID down to a a much less threatening disease for many, many, many people, not an entirely unthreatening disease, but there are extra precautions available on an individual basis, like continuing to wear masks if you want to, don't need to be required uh, because they they help a lot for you, the person wearing it, the one-way masking, um, or the boosting for at-risk populations or really anyone else. And then, there, I mean, there is a certain, I mean, there is just a certain amount of fatigue. Uh, there's, a, there's a point at which it comes in that, 
how, like how much longer can you ask people to do the really militant society-wide you know, closing, those kinds of things? And it's just people just don't want to do it. Enough people don't want to do it anymore, I, I mean, think. Look, and, I, and the situation yeah. is, if the situation was much more grim still, there would be more willingness probably among people but to I, do I that. But I don't know but that. Look, I, so I, 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 look the, things, the, the worst of it is done the mm-hmm. the all of the mandates and the closures and all of that so that just is what it is however you you know whatever you think about it but the question people are asking is is the fatigue related to the messaging is the unwillingness to continue to do some of the things like masking related to public messaging that basically gives people permission to say it's over if we had more of a quote unquote wartime footing like we saw in World War II where people were told that it was their patriotic duty to grow their victory garden and bring their scrap metal in for melt being smelted and all of this kind of stuff, would people feel differently and be more resolute? And if that is the case, does the administration have a responsibility to not put out messaging that suggests that everything is all well and done? Well, but I think the situation doesn't call for them to do that, and it would feel false if they did that. I mean, people, I don't know, I think people have been pretty adaptive to some degree, independent of the messaging or the policies. Everybody started wearing masks, in my recollection, shortly before the government said, oh, yeah, you actually really should wear masks. People used to want them because it felt as though the government, in fact, at that point, was misrepresenting the efficacy of masks in the other direction. They absolutely were. Because they wanted to preserve them for health care officials. But look, here's the argument from from people who are frustrated with Biden's approach here. They say 400 to 500 Americans are still dying every day. Obviously, immunocompromised people continue to be vulnerable. You know, should he be messaging that there is a kind of a blanket low risk for people in this country instead of still asking people, not mandating, but asking people to still do their best to continue to mask up in public? And and should he be setting a different kind of example than these kinds of statements set? I mean, I don't think he should, but maybe there are some liberals or some Democrats who think they should. Probably a lot of those people would say, in an ideal world, your more COVID uh, militant people would say in an ideal world, he would still be modeling, I don't know, masking behavior or something. But we fear that that would have electoral consequences yeah. because well, yeah. the, the people are over it. Sure. Not everyone, but I, I do enough think, people. That yeah. was the, wasn't that the message to some degree from, uh, yes, from I, the, I the, the Youngkin, et cetera, primary season? Yeah, the, Bi- the Biden wins when schools are open and um, he's, yeah. not pre- he's perceived as having handled COVID in a way that Donald Trump didn't. But of course, more people have died under COVID for the same time control period uh, than died under the Trump administration. And, and this is another sticking point that I think is really important to uh, emphasize. The question is, even if you're against personally masking, even if you're against mandates, even if you're against all of it, does allowing Biden to frame the pandemic as being over give him cover from withdrawing the kind of uh, government supports for those who do want to take advantage of certain protections, like getting vaccinated, getting boosters and all that that stuff for free? Is him saying that COVID is over laying the groundwork for him absolving the government of any uh, responsibility to help people pay for the healthcare costs of getting COVID and getting the kind of vaccinations necessary? to protect themselves from COVID. I mean, probably, but I don't think that's an unpopular position to take. Right, but I do think it's perfectly possible to say, I don't want, here's a stance that nobody is taking and a lane that I think more people, especially you know, conservatives, should mm-hmm. occupy, which is, 
I don't want a mask personally, sure, or maybe you do. I definitely don't want mandates. I want schools to be open. I want businesses and restaurants to be open. But I also want the government to make sure there are HVAC systems in these places to make it safe for my kids and for my, my customers. And I want them to continue to pay for vaccines and boosters to the extent that even if you don't think that you qualify or you, it is appropriate for you to get on a regular booster schedule because you just had COVID or you're young and male and all these other kinds of things, that people who are vulnerable, that grandma shouldn't have to weigh the costs of getting a COVID vaccine simply because, or a booster rather, just simply because the Biden administration has washed its hands of their responsibility. Yeah, look, I think the vaccines and the boosters should continue to be free for people to, to get, absolutely. They well, they're able, not they, going to be. Well, they could be covered, they should be covered under insurance then or something yeah, like well, that. Yeah, well, they're not going to be. Yeah. And, and, and is the kind of politicization of these issues causing people who otherwise would be in a position to hold Biden accountable on this stuff? to not really be paying that much attention. Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. the left concern. I think he wants, I, I, I think he wants to move on because he, you know, correctly. And also the, the Omicron way, we've, we've talked about this before, like the Leanna Wen perspective, which is a, like, look, it just went out the window when the Omicron variant came along, which is so contagious that even, that, that even uh, restrictions that are kind of well beyond what the average person is willing to put up with at this point would still not be enough to reduce cases so much that it would be worth doing it. Yes, but the, but the other part of that is that there are new strains predicted for the fall, and I saw a study just either earlier today or yesterday that pointed to the fact that there's some indications that it's going to be quite bad. And we don't know if this is going to be something that is more transmissible, transmissible or less transmissible, whether it's going to be a strain that's going to cause more Death, higher death rates or fewer for also people who are not that vulnerable. And well, so we, should we uncouple the support mechanisms at a time when we're about to be going into arguably a spike in the crisis? My understanding is that people would expect perhaps more transmissible, but not more deadly, yeah, which is we, the trajectory we can only, of we the can only strains. Hope. Well, hope so. More rising right after this. This is a fascinating story. The Federal Aviation Administration has rejected a proposal to cut training hours in half for those applying to become co-pilots. Indianapolis-based Republic Airlines submitted the request. It asks that the FAA slash the minimum amount of flying experience required to hire co-pilots from the mandatory 1,500 to 750 hours. The airline's push to decrease the training requirement comes amid the mounting pressure airlines are facing due to staffing shortages, leading to tens of thousands of flight cancellations and delays. In a statement striking down the proposal, the FAA wrote, after full consideration of Republic's petition for exemption and the public comments, the FAA has determined that the relief requested is not in the public interest and would adversely affect safety. In the past, co-pilots were eligible to be hired with as little as 250 hours of training. But that changed in 2009 after an airplane crashed uh, for Continental Airlines in Buffalo, New York, killing all of the passengers. Um, all right, we might finally have an argument <laughs> on our hands this week. This what, is ridiculous. What's, what's your issue, Robin? Not only should it be cut, it should be cut back to 250 hours. Um, this is this is this is protectionism and bureaucracy. The FAA has no idea what the optimal number of hours anyway to train pilots are. I don't trust them. The, like, the, the government doesn't know these. The government still requires us to take off our shoes and belts to get on planes. They have no idea what contributes to airlines being more safe. This is the reason the airline industry, part of the, a big part of the reason the airline industry is broken right now. It's too hard to get pilots back into the system. Many of them retired or were laid off during the pandemic. Many of those were hired under conditions where they didn't have to 
to work this many hours. So you got them out of the system. We can't get new pilots back into the system because the this is that's, an, that's a ridiculous amount of hours arbitrarily doubled just because there was one plane crash. Not so not not an increase in plane crashes generally, but just one plane crash. We don't even know if that plane crash happened because there weren't enough pilots taking enough training hours. It was just sad, outraged people. It is sad. It's sad. But plane travel is still very safe, very few plane crashes. Sometimes they do crash, almost never, but sometimes they do. And we all have to suffer higher prices because of it, because the government said, well, all right, we'll just double the, we'll just double the hours for some so reason. So I would argue that the Federal Aviation Administration actually does know a great deal about pilot training and what kind of training hours are no, required. No, they don't. And that I agree that there's a really root problem here that's being sidestepped, and you alluded to it. It's the fact that there were mass layoffs of pilots during COVID, despite the fact that U.S. Airlines took $54 billion in COVID-19 money. Which was outrageous. Wait a minute. Which was contingent in part on them not firing people. So what did they do? They did what a lot of companies did, which, which is to basically push people out by offering them these retirement packages so they didn't have to actually pay their salary and could pocket a lot of that money and distribute it in the forms of dividends to shareholders. So they weren't cash poor. They can't afford to train pilots optimally to keep the public safe. If you were on that one plane that went down, I'm sure you wouldn't be quite so flippant about uh, the uh, training required for pilots. And moreover, the training is not the issue here. The cost isn't the issue here. It's whether or not corporate greed has made airlines prioritize their shareholders and their own profits over actually keeping the public safe. And I would argue what's happening right now is there's a real shortage because life as a pilot is horrible. They are experiencing some of the scheduling it's issues. horrible because that these, you have to train for 1,500 hours before you no, can even drive no, a freaking plane. No, it's not. It's, it's horrible because they have terrible hours. They're, they're scheduling just like the very a lot of similarities to what the uh, rails, uh, the rail workers that are on the brink of strike right now have been arguing about um, very low pay, very long hours, very few breaks, very uh, unstable schedule, obviously very exhausting and taxing job that requires a significant degree of training. And they haven't been recruiting new people to fill in those kinds of spots because they haven't been willing to pay to train them. And now, instead of taking responsibility for the actions that they made as a corporation, they're trying to offload the cost, but the moral cost, onto the American public takes, and our safety. It takes time to train them. It takes five yes, the, times the, as the, much the time concern, to train them as it used to. The concern isn't training. The obstacle here is in training. The reason that we have the obstacle a, is the training. No, no, no. The reason that we have a pilot pipeline is because these airlines don't want to pay for the training, not because there aren't people willing to do the training and the time to actually implement the training. Also, well, it's, it's because they paid people to stay home and quit their jobs because they wanted to again pocket this COVID I don't relief on that. I instead of investing in their business. Absolutely dead set against that. When they did that, I said it would just be they would just pocket that money, the airlines, which is exactly what they did. Totally against industry specific bailouts down the line. I am. I was against so that. So why not punish the airlines then, Robbie? Why say that they should be able to get off the hook by simply offloading more costs onto the public? Where does this end? At what point are airlines going to be forced to be accountable for their reckless spending and the fact that they keep stuffing money into their shareholders' pockets instead of reinvesting in a business like a good business person would do? When are we going to make the government accountable to actual science or safety or logic or reason or anything of that nature? Well, I would love, look, I would love it if instead of constantly bailing out the airline industry, the government just bought the whole thing. It's a cheaper, well, at this point, we've paid more to bail the airline industry out than it's actually valued on paper. The government, the government has government not demonstrated, the government is absolutely the problem here. But the government isn't, the government isn't the one that's doing any of this. It's the airline company that's been told now, you have to, you have to deal within the context. Nothing 
that no rule has changed. They're basically seeking a rule. Wait a minute, no. The, the airlines are seeking a rule change in order to absolve themselves of the responsibility for their no. reckless their reckless spending practices during COVID. So why should the airlines get to stuff corporate money, stuff government money into the corporate coffers and then go ahead and beg to the government, give me more handouts in, turn, in a way this that is not that a is handout. Yes, it this is. is saying we would like to go back there, to yeah. only three times as many there, hours as it used asking, to be rather than five times as many hours. They're asking to change rules that were not a rules problem that are before. Stupid. They were asking you to change These rules were always a problem. safety protocols that were not a problem before and which no one was objecting to before precisely because they wasted government money. So what is to incentivize them against continuing to waste government money and then running back after the fact to simply beg for the rules to be changed so they play by a different set of rules than every other business owner in America? What do you mean different set of rules? All the airlines should equally have the rules that were in place beforehand. These rules, there's no evidence they contribute to greater you know, plane safety. First of all, you safety. don't know that, Robbie. You do not know that. Have airplane crashes increased? or decreased or anything you of that nature? You don't know that. I know that they have not. You, you absolutely don't know that. And frankly, I think it's a little, it's the, the, the steady encroachment on our civil liberties. You mentioned the TSA, on our ability to uh, go uh, travel freely, on our ability to travel without having to pay exorbitant fees for baggage check fees, and all of these other things that we all know that have been oppressive at the airport. The I don't know why anybody would defend an airline's ability to expand their power and expand their lack of accountability to the public. At the end of the day, these airlines were able to function profitably and safely under the rules. So why is the knee-jerk reaction here to basically apologize for the institution for its own reckless spending habits that's, and instead look for oh a God, rule change? Oh my God, that's so not what is going on. Look for a rule change instead of doing what they should do, which is to look at their accounting book and ask why it is that they have done participated in this reckless spending, especially since it was done okay, with what, this bailout. What if the government tomorrow increased it to 5,000 hours? You need 5,000 hours of training. And you would say, well, and well, they we, said, no, we think it's in the best we, interest we, of safety. No, we should have a we conversation. We could reduce plane crashes from one in a million well, to one in two million. we could have a conversation at that time about what the conversation is. But neither That's what of they us, did. That's no, what they already minute, Robbie, did. No, we, neither of us has in front of us, and neither of us was paying attention at whatever date and time in history, whether it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, who knows, when the initial rule change was made around this crash in, um, in Buffalo, was it Buffalo, New York? Yeah. So I'm very happy to go back and look at that decision and have a conversation when we both are informed by facts about what's going on here. But what we know for sure here is that the cause, the proximate cause of what the airlines are going through is that they wasted the money they were given in the context of COVID. And they should never they have been given that money. the pilots. They treated their employees terribly. They basically pushed them out the door. And now they're crying and whining because they don't want to offer people salaries to come back and the training that they need to come back to do their job safely. The By the way, the training barrier is a protection for the for the employees and the pilots they have currently because they can't hire more people. And ultimately, that's what's driving up yeah, they, the can't, they can't hire of, more people because we're all customers. You, you can read about this. Literally, the argument is that it's costly to train people, and I mean, they don't costly. want to front the cost of that. They pass that it on training. to you. They always do. They pass it on to you. We're all going to pay higher prices and, and because the FAA arbitrarily decided another, that five times more. And now they're passing on safety on to us when they could have simply not dispersed government money. Do you understand why I would say, though, that I do not trust the government to know what the appropriate balance of safety and convenience is? Can you, especially in an airport no, context, I, we, we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to agree about that, Robbie. I think that there needs to be an FDA to regulate food and drugs in this country. I let's think talk that we, in the airline. Oh, I, I, that was okay. my next sentence. Okay. And I think, by analogy, there needs to be regulation of aeronautics in this country. And I think the government that has our 
sorry, the Air Force that flies all of the Air Force, all the planes in the Navy, is very knowledgeable and effective and perhaps the most expert person in the entire country, perhaps the world, about the issue of aeronautics. So yes, I think that there has to be an established oversight mechanism. And I don't know who, I certainly trust the government more than some private entity, since we see now all the cost cutting that the private entity is I do not, like when I have the about. experience of walking, of going through the airport, I do not, I am not struck with, I, I do not experience the feeling I have so much confidence that the, the government the, understands Robbie, the how airport, to be safe. The airport, the airport is in the FAA. These are different. These are different they're entities. They're different agencies, but they're all part of the same federal government system. Okay. Well, well, you've already established that you don't want there to be an FDA. So if that's the standard of laissez-faire, I really don't want there to be a TSA. Okay. They're telling us we got to go. There was the argument for the week. More rising after this. A Canadian high school is facing calls to fire a transgender teacher after a video circulated online of the instructor wearing enormous prosthetic breasts to work. Now, according to students, teacher Kayla Lemieux began transitioning from male to female about a year ago. Despite the outrage, school officials defended Lemieux in a letter to parents, writing, quote, Oakville Trafalgar High School recognizes the rights of students, staff, parents, guardians, and community members to equitable treatment without discrimination based upon gender identity and gender expression. Fox News host Tucker Carlson had this to say about the situation earlier this week. It's hard to believe this is happening, but we're sad to tell you it's not just happening in Canada. You see versions of it everywhere, including in this country. And to be clear, what this is. Children being used as props in the sexual fantasies of adults. Children being used as props in the sexual fantasies of adults. Are you okay with that? Is any normal person okay with that? It's completely wrong. It's utterly outside the bounds of what's acceptable. What you're seeing is a society that hates children. You would have to hate children in order to sexualize them because sexualizing children screws them up for life. Ask anyone to whom it's happened, period. No one should put up with this. No parent should put up with this for one second, no matter what the law says. Your duty, your moral duty, is to defend your children. This is an attack on your children, and you should fight back. So this is a story that uh, conservative media is very fired up about. Um, mm. Tucker brought it, I think, to the broader attention, although I saw some sites talking about it even before he did this in his monologue like two days ago. Um, obviously, it, it you know, feeds into this larger concern about um, what's being taught to children, the libs of TikTok kind of videos of teachers. You're trying not to laugh. I see you trying not <laughs> no, to laugh. No, please continue. Okay. So my... Um, the only point I really want to make with this story, and I, I have a take that is slightly different from Tucker. I don't... Forget about whether it's child sexual abuse. I don't know what grade she teaches. I don't know why she's doing this. I, I would just, we, we, we don't have to even get into the politicization of it. It's just, not in, it's just not appropriate to dress like that at a job. Just a job in general. A, 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 a outward facing, not even a job with children. Like if you're a bank teller, they're not going to hire you if you're dressed like that. It doesn't need to get into any crazy. But a bank is a little bit behind AM. <laughs> but you know what? They're not, if you walk in, if you walked in with a strap-on dildo, they're not going to hire you anyway either. If you walk in, like in a in a in a in a Ronald McDonald costume covered in pig's blood, they're also not going to hire you. It is fine to expect some small standards of professional behavior and dress without getting into any. Even even debates, a very politicized debate about gender and any of that thing, it is not appropriate to dress that way in a school or really most normal workplaces. Yeah, I mean, of, of, right? course, of course that's true. Look, there are standards 
of dress that an appropriateness. Now, it can be the case that those are applied differently to different people based on how they look. This woman's breasts are prosthetic, so it feels like a choice and a choice that does seem unprofessional. However, there are, there's a different kind of a discourse about how there are fuller figured women who happen to have larger breasts that are accused of dressing inappropriately at school when they're wearing like a long sleeve sweater and they can't help what they look like. That is what it is. And, and this, this is a different case. I will say that the only thing that really strikes me about this story is kind of why it's a story at all. <laughs> We're talking about a woman who does not live in the United States of America, who's being used as an example of the crisis that is happening in our own country about kids and sexualization of youth and left gone amok. This is a Canadian woman who is you know, following rules that are not set by me or set by some school district in a land far away. And so I am- A I, land far away, <laughs> it's Canada. I mean, I, that's none of my business. Okay. I, I haven't okay. gone to Canada in many years. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, like this just is not my business. So, you know, I, I, I do, I just do want to beg the, I just want to ask the question, why is it that instances like this get so much attention on shows like this? I have no interest in defending some bizarro choice to wear mega, 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 mega large breasts. I, you know, it is what it is. I have my own personal feelings about it. Most people probably share those, but why is this being politicized in the way that it is? And why is, I'm sorry, from my perspective, it feels like Tucker Carlson is trying to use these fringe cases to ratchet up distaste for members of our own fellow community. I mean, I think this person is getting the attention they obviously sought. You don't dress <laughs> yeah. like that and, and, and want to like unobtrusively pass through society. It, it's an attention, it is obviously an attention seeking move that has now garnered serious national attention. Um, and I, you know, I don't want this person to get death threats or harassment or whatever else they're going to get. But look, the reason, I think the reason we're talking about it, in addition to it just being kind of salacious, is that it mirrors the, the, the whole, so, so parents are uncomfortable with this mm -hmm. at, at that school. Mm -hmm. And they're saying they're uncomfortable. And the school is saying, too bad. And that is similar to uh, some debates we're having in our own country, not in the far off land of Canada, about how schools responded to parental feedback about what the curriculum is, what the COVID policies are, et cetera. Parents like are very dissatisfied. Of, what kind very, of feedback? Like because the Loudoun County type stuff. So what specifically was the criticism there? Uh, that, was, that was the angry school board meetings where, so they were mad about, they, they said the school district had not properly responded or notified parents about uh, sexual assault that had occurred that it involved someone that was gender fluid or something like that. Now, I, I looked more into that case, and you can go back and look at my past radars, and uh, I, I think it was much more complicated than either side was willing to concede. But, uh, but look, you, you can't deny there's a lot of anger at a lot of school district meetings because a the parents feel they're not anger at a lot of okay I there's mean, some i mean I in mean, virginia there's the some it, it's hard because i don't want to minimize what happened in any given place and the concerns that parents mm -hmm. have the only question is why is this a national issue and why is the party that is so focused on st states rights and communities being able to work out their own issues forcing all of the, this minutia onto the broader well, public it's, as it's a I, trend i think if you don't like what your school is teaching or the way Go the teachers behave. Go talk about God bless you. Well, and if they say, if they tell you to get lost, then you should be able to go to a different school. Everybody has their, their right. You should be people able to take the their, money invested on your job. behalf in that school and take it to another school. Yeah, I mean, you can do that and we'll have crumbling school infrastructure, rising We'll have crumbling rates. schools in the schools that yeah, well, hire people like this. 
Well, no, we'll have crumbling schools in the schools that people fled from. And that's the story of a lot of what happened to these urban schools in the 1960s and early 70s when integration was forced, when the, when the government finally said it was no longer legal to segregate schools. The consequence was that there was white flight. People picked up and left, as was their right and their ability to do so. But now these urban areas, which are still capital cities and important economic centers for all of these states, have uh, ongoing problems with poverty and the resulting crime. And so there's no such thing as ex leaving your community. There's no such thing as abandoning the community. We all live here in the United States of America. And we have to figure out how to do it together. And I'm just not convinced that this kind of rhetoric is helping that cause. I will only respond to that quickly just to say, you're right, that happened. But in that case, that was people uh, right, whites were fleeing who could afford to leave. What I'm advocating is we would make it affordable for everyone to leave because we would use that money and just give it to. In that not, case, it was people yeah. who couldn't afford. This to is get not out. the time to uh, have a charter school debate. This is a time to talk about what cup size exactly would be appropriate <laughs> for a given professor. This is definitely not the time uh, to talk about that. You're going to get me canceled, Brianna. <laughs> Oh boy! All right, we 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 managed uh, we managed to end that block. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, we're going to dig into what we know so far about the updated COVID nineteen booster shots. Take an in depth look at why migrants from from Venezuela, excuse me, are heading to the U S. Be sure, as always, to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of this choice content. And for those who like to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can catch us on the Plex TV app. Mm. We'll see you tomorrow. It's a great show today, I think. Excellent show. Superb. <laughs> see you all tomorrow. <laughs>